Well, the words we just sang are very powerful words. Um, I once was lost. I once was blind. Um, in the song, it contains the idea of a wretch like me. Um, those are desperate words that are being stated, being sung. And uh, they are words of one who's looking back. And they're looking back and they're seeking to grasp the hard realities of their past and they're feeling, of the, they're feeling the hard realities of their past, even in, in the present, and the emotions, the sorrow, the regret, and the agony, the guilt, the loneliness. In, in those words, their broken condition before the Lord, I once was lost, I once was blind. But the words also contain great words of hope in it. Uh, it talks about now I am found, uh, now I see my chains are gone, um, I have been set free. And it's really a, a statement of, if you will, from guilt upon guilt to blessing upon blessing. And uh, what a declaration. And how does a person go from being in a place of guilt upon guilt to blessing upon blessing? That's really the question for today. How does a person go from being in a place in a condition of guilt upon guilt to a place of blessing upon blessings? We're going to be diving into that. Uh, in 1505, there was a man who vowed himself to be a monk. So soon after, in his small, simple stone room as a monk, he agonized over his spiritual condition. He had entered the monastery to achieve holiness, but he was not finding it. His teachers told him that he could strive to be victorious over sin, so he relentlessly fasted and prayed and worked for an ultimate victory over sin. For three years, he sought such kind of victory. He is quoted as saying, I torment myself to death to procure peace with God for my troubled heart and my agitated conscience. But I was surrounded by horrible darkness and could find no peace anywhere. Uh, this monk would have related the portion of the song, I was lost, I was blind, I was dead, but he could not relate to the now I'm found, now I see, now I live. And uh, this monk would even agonize over how he, as a sinner before a holy God, would, could sleep well at night in light of his understanding of his own condition. So one day, the older priest uh, to whom the young monk continually went to for confession said to him, Martin Luther, either find a new sin and commit it, or quit coming to see me. Luther uh, previously had had the opportunity to become uh, a successful lawyer, uh, but instead he gave that up in his venture to pursue peace with God over his past and his present sin condition. Uh, but Luther's guilt would not leave him. It was like he couldn't shake it off. He couldn't peel it off. He couldn't pull it off. And he yearned to be able to sing. But now I'm fine. Now I am alive. He yearned for that. So I have a question. Someone in that reality, what counsel do you give them? What's the answer to that question? So how would you help someone who is anguished in guilt upon guilt for his or her past? What's the answers for it? It's interesting because our world makes attempts at it. 
A few of them here I've listed down. One, they excuse it. Hey, no one's perfect. It's all okay. Just get over it. Move on. Just love yourself and it'll all go away. Another one is blame it. Hey, it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. Um, They're the ones who did it. You had to do what you had to do. Or another is uh, most common probably is just good works it away. Hey, as long as my good works outweigh my bad works, then I'm all okay. Um, Or here's one. Some try to drown it out. They try and drink it away. They try and drug it away. They try and pleasure it away. And then there's my personal favorite. Some years ago, there was one approach to blow it away. For $5, you could buy a set of 10 disposable guilt bags. They were just brown paper bags with the instructions printed on each bag saying, place the bag securely over your mouth, take a deep breath, blow all your guilt out, then dispose of the bag immediately. I'm not kidding. The Associated Press said that uh, whoever the brainiac is who did this uh, uh, sold 2,500 kits uh, of those. Now, I just say this. Imagine Martin Luther. All right, Martin Luther places his order on Amazon for his built guilt bag kit. He receives it from a brown dress similar to him, UPS guy, uh, dropping it off. He, uh, he takes it, he runs to his, he runs to his room, he, he takes one of the brown bags, reads the instructions, he, he takes this monstrous breath of air, and then blows his living essence into the bag. And then after having blown every atom of guilt-ridden self into it, he hurriedly closes it, runs it out to the monastery dumpster, throws it in the dumpster, and goes, I am free! I got to tell you, friends, that's the kind of stuff that is so ridiculous that people will do it. But that's not what Luther did. Um... There's a far better solution. Open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. When he is bigger than my past. It's page 462. If you're using one of the Bibles behind the seats there, I'd really encourage you to have a Bible open on your lap. I promise you, this short psalm will be huge for you, as it has been for me even this week. A little context about Psalm 32. Uh, David, uh, who's the writer of it, David is about 50 years old. I want to say that again. He's 50 years old in this. I'm 55. He's 50. Uh, He's been a king in Israel now for some 20 years. He's lived faithfully before the Lord, and he's experienced God's blessing and goodness in his life. Also during this time, the nation is at war. Uh, David is residing in Jerusalem uh, in his palace. When all of a sudden on one evening, he can't sleep, so he gets up, walks around on the roof of his palace, no big deal, until he sees across the way a beautiful woman bathing on another housetop. And rather than turning his eyes and hightailing himself out of the situation like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, he, uh, he lingers. And an innocent sighting, Uh, moves into a lustful heart. David then actually asks his staff to go and to bring the woman to him. And this uh, man after God's own heart commits adultery. 
Bathsheba is a married woman whose husband is a leader in David's army, and she becomes pregnant. David, rather than acknowledging his sin and repenting, goes to some extreme measures to cover up his snowballing mess that he now has, including a plan to have Uriah, who's Bathsheba's husband, killed in battle. And in literally a short period of time, in a matter of just a few decisions, David has gone from unable to sleep, to adulterer, to deceiver, to murderer. He's sinned blatantly before his God and he's guilty, utterly guilty, and he knows it and he feels it and he can't good works it away. He can't excuse it away. He can't blame it away. He can't drown it away. And friends, I promise you, he certainly cannot blow it away in a brown paper bag and chuck it out. But what David does is he tries to run from it. He tries to run away from it. So what can happen to one that runs from the Lord? Um, You never make it out. I'll just say it that way. You cannot run from the Lord. So the Lord, in his love, actually comes after David by having a prophet, Nathan. I don't know, maybe it was Nathan who was baptized because that boy can speak it. It wasn't him, but he brought a different Nathan into his life, stepped in, and uh, God begins to work in David's present to address David's past. Psalm 32. Uh, you can look at it there. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The uh, first couple words here are in the original Hebrew. It says, a mascal of David. And think of the New International Version. It says, of David, a mascal, whatever. It's there. But, but uh, a mascal, what, what is that? Well, actually, it's interesting. We kind of don't know, really. Um, it could be something where it's a heading to where it's like, hey, here's an understanding, an instruction, an insight from David. It could be just a notation for the director of the music, for the musicians or vocalists or whatever, because this is a psalm. It could be a, a reminder or a call to attention. We're quite not sure, but that's not the point even why I'm bringing this to the attention is, is I want to make sure we understand this is of David. The human writer of this of da- is David following some time after what I just explained to you what happened in his life. And and David is writing about this. Verse 1 and 2, let me begin there. Blessed is the one whose transgressions, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a really cool opening here because he's saying, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the one, blessed, blessed. And he talks about, you can see it, it's blessed, forgiven, sin covered, no iniquity counted, no deceit. I'll just say this, I want that. I want that. I want to be in that place of just having this blessed, blessed. I mean, who doesn't want to have this kind of thing of forgiven, sin covered, no iniquity counted? And I'll tell you, I want that. We want that over some like uh, a balance of sin meter, like the good works meter. Like I do a little bit more good works than my bad works. I just, here's the question. At what point is enough good works enough? How many good works do you have to do? You never know because you can't. And it was even mentioned in the baptisms. For by grace you are saved through faith and is not of yourselves. 
You can't earn it. Doesn't matter how many good things you do. You can't excuse our sin away. You, you, you can't shift it away. You can't booze it away, drugs it away, sex it away, party it away. You can't. And for sure, you can't blow it in a paper bag away. Um, straight up. I think we want verses one and two to be a reality in our lives, don't we? I mean, that's what I want. Sin and guilt forgiven, covered fully, no remnant to hold against, no spirit of deceit, but it's dealt with and it's dealt with fully by the Lord with no possibility of it ever being pulled out and used against us. I want my sin divinely removed. We want our sin divinely removed, not self-removed. I want it permanently covered, and if that's possible, bring that on. By the way, verses 1 and 2, this is really, really important, and I think super cool. David, when he's writing this, David uses three different words for sin. How many words? Three. Three different words for sin. In the Hebrew, he uses pesha. It's the willful violation of an inferior against a superior, it's in verse one, it's, it's not an oopsie on David's part. It's David has committed a transgression before his superior, God. Then it also uses the word hata. It carries the broadest range of meaning for sin. It's not just like a sin. It's the whole condition of sin. It's the whole wholeness of sin. It's the whole broadness, the entirety of sin is the idea here, hata. And then he uses a third word, awan. It's the sin that relates to religious and ethical parameters in here. Um, so pesha, hata, awan. Why three words? To use for emphasis. And we don't get that in the English. When the Hebrew reader is seeing this, he's getting what David is saying. This is far more deep than just saying, yeah, I got some sins out there. David is dealing with this with grand thought. And grand intellect here. In fact, they're going to be really important here in a few minutes. Isaiah, by the, uh, Isaiah 59, by the way, says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear. Can you imagine that picture? Isaiah 59, 2 says, For the person without Christ, for the person that is in their sin, God is going like this and like this. I can't see, I can't hear. I love you, but I can't see, I can't hear because of sin. That's a bad place to be. That's a bad condition to be in. And by the way, Luther understood exactly that. That's why Luther was so agonized. Because he understood his condition before God. And loved ones, if you and I do not understand the grandness of our sin problem, you and I will never understand the greatness of God. And what our world does is our world tries to make our sin issue really, really small, like it's not a very big deal. And when sin is really, really small, all you need is a really small God. I just need a God to come in and cover up my oopsies. Friends, that's not what's going on here. That's not what was the reality in David's life. And by the way, I'll note this. David is writing this after all of his sin 
And he's also writing this after his repentance. That's why he can say blessed. And in that after fact reality, if this guy who did all that, if this guy who did all that can one day stand and go blessed, blessed, there's hope. Listen, I don't care what you have done. I don't care where you are at right now in your whole sin. I want you to know this. God's word says, blessed upon blessed can be your reality. And out of that, the question goes, well, how? How does that happen? How did David get from a messed up guilt situation to blessed times two? Well, verses three and four. Here's how. He starts with his condition before. Let's get the picture. How does one get to blessed upon blessed? Well, you have to go back and follow it through. Verse 3. For when I kept silent. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then, by the way, there's a word there, Selah. We'll come to that in just a minute. So David's opening words here in verse 3 state his problem. When I kept silent. Silent with whom? Well, silent with the Lord. Silent about what? Silent about his sin. And you know what's really interesting, isn't it? How foolish we are. We think, you know, it's like, okay, our sin. God's got it. Whatever. Somehow it's all okay. Um, It's interesting here because I would clearly say that David was a redeemed believer in Christ who had driven the stake in the ground with Christ. uh, Knowing that Christ Christ was coming at this point. David was a believer. And yet David, and this is talking about when he kept silent, God's hand was heavy upon him. Listen, friends, this is not just for the person that is without Christ. This is for the person in the context of it. This is for the person that is in Christ. And here David is in this condition where where, where he is keeping silent. Listen, such pride. Our pride drives our silence in sin. We don't want to address it, so it's like, I'm going to keep silent in my sin. I'm just going to keep silent about it. And I just ask this question. Hey, follower of Christ. When was the last time you got unsilent about your sin with the Lord? Not silent, but when was the last time you got unsilent with the Lord? One's silence, the length of one's silence is a measuring rod of the relationship with the Lord. It is also a measuring rod of the depth of our pride. You know, we really aren't any different than David. We're also not any different than Adam and Eve, Jonah, Paul. Adam and Eve, they tried to stay silent in their disobedience before the Lord. Jonah tried running and staying silent with the Lord in his whole thing. Saul, who later became Paul, he was great about being vocal about his religiousness, but he was silent in the Lord in his self-righteousness. Newsflash. 
Silence with the Lord gets you nowhere real fast. Silence with the Lord about our sin gets us nowhere real fast. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. (laughs) I actually love this out of the King James Version. It says, through my roaring. You get the idea? David's not like bothered by it. David is agonizing over it. He is in this place where it's like groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I mean, it's like the picture of David is on his bedroom floor, just a physical rack. And he's roaring in this 24-7 kind of uh, God's hand is heavy upon me kind of condition. And without question, I believe that David is redeemed. And yet that's the place where he's at. Because he has remained silent with the Lord about his sin. Listen, when you get married, there's a moment when you get married. Right, guys, you remember the moment you got married. Guys, if your wife's in here, you got to be remembering the moment you got married. Okay? So there's a moment that you say, I do. There's a moment that you enter into that condition. You enter into that relationship. You enter into that state. And when you say, I do, you are now married. It is the same with Christ. When you come to a place to where you receive Christ as your Savior, you drive the stake in the ground and commit to that condition of being in relationship with Jesus because of his work on the cross for that, you now are in a new relationship. But listen, just like marriage, as the relationship moves on, there's ongoing relationships. And while with the Lord, our sins are covered and and, and taken care of positionally for all eternity, there is an ongoing theological reality of that. And friends, the Lord loves it when his people get unsilent with him about their sin. It's not go telling everybody about it, making a big hoodoo in front of everybody about it, and screaming from the corners, but the Lord loves it when his people get unsilent with him about their sin. Admit it, state it, just put it on the table. Why? Because it's too heavy not to. And that's what David is going through here. When I kept silent with the Lord, agony becomes my story. When I keep silent with the Lord, agony becomes my story. My story. King David, again, I just, as a 50 year old guy, 50s guy, he's in his 50s, served the Lord faithfully for years, for decades, and now he's in utter agony. Why? Because of his silence in his sin. And he knows it. The Lord loves him, but David has a relational issue going on on the on day, on day walking with the Lord. And I just want to pause here and I just want to say this straight up, ask this straight up. Is this you? Is this you? Or it's just been a long time since face down, kneeling before a great God that loves you, and getting unsilent. This isn't a matter of losing one's salvation. 
This is a matter of ongoing relationship. Are you feeling the weight? Because I just want to say, loved ones, there's hope beyond imagination. The weight can be gone. Not by brown bag, but by, look at verse 5. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. Isn't that interesting? I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice here, two things are taking place. This is critical. David acknowledges and confesses his sin to the Lord. When I acknowledge and confess... Oh, think about this. He acknowledged uh, there was this elephant in the room in his relationship with the Lord about his sin. And David was silent about this elephant thing that took place in his life. This adultery, this murder, this deception that took place in David's life. He's just being silent with the Lord about that like nothing's going wrong, like we're all okay. And yet in it, what happened was, in his silence, he moves out of his silence because acknowledgement is first about a head thing. It is about an understanding thing. Acknowledgement is acknowledging your sin thing. Hey, I committed adultery. Hey, I killed a guy. I didn't personally, but I schemed it to happen. He acknowledges that. He brings it to light before the Lord. Yup, there it is. There's the elephant in the room of our relationship, Lord. In all of its ugliness, I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to. But Lord, I acknowledge this before you. But notice it doesn't stop there. One acknowledges and then it says he confessed. He spoke it. He said it. He stated it. He put it into words. Why is that important? Because you can acknowledge something without confessing something. You can acknowledge something and yet not confess it. In, in, it's like, yep, there it is. I acknowledge there it is. But I'm not going to say anything more. Friends, that is not confession before the Lord. It can be like, yeah, I acknowledge there's a creator. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I believe there's a God. And yep, I, I believe that uh, we were created to glorify God. Yep, 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 I, I believe that. And, and I acknowledge that. And yep, I acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross. I acknowledge that. And, and I acknowledge that I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account. I acknowledge all that. And nothing moves. Nothing changes. It's just information acknowledged. Confession moves beyond that. It's not simple acknowledgement, but repentance is acknowledgement and confession. Repentance is not acknowledgement alone. Repentance is acknowledgement with followed by confession. There is a grand, grand difference. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Both of those, there's confession and acknowledgement right there. You then will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. There's an acknowledgement idea there. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
And for the uh, person in Christ, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in the ongoing working reality of it. So after months, months, and months, and months, and months, of David's agony in his silence, David acknowledges his sin and gets unsilent. And he confesses it before the Lord. By the way, remember the three words I mentioned earlier? They are all three in verse 5. This is what's so cool about this. David knew exactly what he was doing here in the writing of this. It's this. I acknowledge my hata to you. The entirety of my sin to you. I acknowledge that. And I did not cover up my ahwan, my religious and ethical transgressions. I said, I will confess my pesha to the Lord. My open, brazen, covenant rebellion against my superior, the Lord. And you forgave. I love this. You forgave the guilt of my hata, the entirety of it, the entirety of it. He is using these words to show the grandness of God's forgiveness. It is no stupid little, like, just, just, just. Forget it. No, no, just apologize. No, when sin is sin, it's sin. And God is big enough and desiring enough that he just doesn't want to do like a little willy-nilly wiener cover over. He wants to like do a massive forgive, take it out, remove it, goner. That's what the Lord wants to bring. Do you know that? See, God's working. (laughs) When I acknowledge and confess to the Lord, forgiven becomes my story. Not because someone said so, but because God said so. Not because I feel like it, but because God did it. When I acknowledge and confess to the Lord, forgiven becomes my story. By the way, look at the end of verse 5. I forgot about mentioning at the end of verse 4 as well, the word Selah there. It kind of has this idea of exalt, lift up. I might say it this way. It's kind of like a reminder of think about it. Think about that at the end of it. I mean, here David is... Telling in verses 3 and 4 the, 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 the gravity of, his, of, of, of where he's at. And the Lord is agony before the Lord. And it's like, Selah, think about that. And then it's over here. I acknowledge my sin to you. I said I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the hata. Think about that. Selah. Oh, I love the way that. Weight and the pressure on him has changed to protection. The destruction changes to deliverance. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. And you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Think about that. Selah. Therefore I, as a result of his story, David calls the reader, you and I, one to pray. To pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Why? Because it's as though David is looking back in all this. And he looks back at what took place. And then he looked back at his repentance as now he's writing about it. And as he's looking back on his sin situation. And he looks back on when he came into repentance with the Lord. And and the forgiveness that came out of that. And what stirs in someone when that's the situation. And they're like, they realize now where they're at. Blessed, blessed. They, they, They go, don't wait. Don't wait. Because right now the Lord can be found. I think David in this is looking back and is like, well, what would have happened if at that point in time? And then I stand before the Lord and I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry I didn't get this straightened out with you. I believe David is a redeemed believer and is in heaven even at that point. But just the ongoing thing of relationship with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I didn't finish strong. I think he's thinking back to that. And so the call out is pray to the Lord. Don't mess around with this. Don't piddle with it. Get low. Put her face down before the Lord. He's bigger than any of your past. He is bigger. And here this one that was under the heavy hand of the Lord is now under the Lord's care. You are a hiding place for me. Hide in in the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Hide in the Lord. Hide, hide. Why would I be hiding? Because I know the reality of all that is who I am in all of my past. Friends, I could stand up here today and tell you about stuff in my past, but I don't want to. Hide in the Lord and hide it there. Hold it there. Under his umbrella, under his tenting, the Lord knows every piece of it. And we don't need to get up and tell everything. Sometimes it can really be used by the Lord to tell what things we have done in the past and how the Lord has brought us out of those things. And those are fine to be able to do those at times. But there's other times where it's like, listen, for us, on day-to-day ongoing thing of it all, just hide in the Lord. Pray to the Lord. And hide there, hold there, be protected in him. Think about that. I pray to the Lord and I hide in the Lord. And then verse 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed and with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What's he talking about here? It's like this. This is so cool. In verses three and four, God's hand is heavy in love on David because God knows David hasn't dealt with him on this one. And so in love, the Lord is heavy upon him. And David finally acknowledges and confesses his sin. And now it's like hiding in the Lord and in his love. And yet here in it, it also includes the Lord's like, hey, I don't accept you like you're an annoying person. He accepts you in the fact that now I will will instruct you. 
I will counsel you. I will watch over you. I will teach you. Isn't that awesome? Hey, are you there? Isn't that awesome? I mean, when we come under the Lord, he doesn't just like be like, okay, why don't you get in the back because I'm kind of embarrassed by you? No, no, here's the reality. We think that way. He doesn't. He's like, don't get in the back of the bus, right next to me where I can teach you and instruct you and love on you and care for you and use you. And if we're thinking back of the bus, we're thinking wrong. We're not thinking the way the Lord sees it. Friends, God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth, hashtag infinity. And we all need it. And this is a topic that just doesn't get talked about enough because we don't want to talk about sin. And yet, when we talk about it from a biblical perspective, there's hope because God is bigger than any of your past sin. By the way, note in it, it talks about bit and bridle in verse 9. The bit, the bit's in the horse's mouth to move his head and uh, to, ha- to have the horse move uh, to be led. The bridle was more of a muzzle in that day, actually to keep the horse from biting. Isn't that interesting? He's like, listen, don't be led by yourself. Don't lead where you want to go. Let me lead you. And by the way, I'm going to muzzle you because you have a tendency to bite. And we do, don't we? And yet the Lord knows that. And here in this, there's this focus on submission, this focus on yielding to that reality. Hey, we want to do what we want to do and bite where we want to bite. And the Lord's like, no, let, let, let me lead you and let me muzzle your bite. Trust me. Yield to me. That's a person who learns from the Lord. They learn from you. Are you a yielder? Are you a yearner of the learner of the Lord? Are you fighting the bit and the bridle that you and I need because we think we're so awesome and we think we're so smart and we think we're so righteous? Listen, the Lord wants to help us by loving on us. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, this is kind of summary, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. David is contrasting the woes of wickedness with blessings of yielding, and here it's many are the sorrows, many are the woes of the wicked, many are the sorrows of the unrepentant. Let me say it this way, many are the sorrows of the silent. Many are the sorrows of the silent. By the way, it's not a few sorrows. It's many. It's woes, it's sores, it's pains is the idea. Yet the Lord's steadfast love surrounds the one who yields and repents. It surrounds. That doesn't mean you have a teaspoon of it. That doesn't mean you have just a bit of it. You are surrounded by it. 
That means it's in front and in back. That means it's on each side. That means it's top and bottom and circling around. Everywhere, surrounded. You can't get out of it. The Lord loves the unrepentant. Or the repentant. He loves the unrepentant when they repent. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Oh, righteous. That's crazy. Earlier, he's like, I'm dying. I'm roaring in agony of unrighteousness. And yet here, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, blessed and agonized, delivered, instructed. And here he finishes with this being glad. Rejoice and shout of the Lord. Shout. By the way, that doesn't mean I am solemn about it. I am thinking and Pondering in a sense of intellect. No. Shout! What, what causes a person to shout? Like when you're really excited. Like when, when, when you go to a football game and the team scores. Woo! Right? Yeah, that's reason to shout. You know, they, they go three yards. It's like, okay, that's awesome. Let's do another one. No, but shouting comes when something big takes place. And that's why here, and I'll just say, friends, that's why we're not about singing very flat. Enough of that. God's people should be people that raise the house. Because God's people understand what God has done. I am telling you, heaven is not going to be a boring place. It is going to be raise the roof all the time. And the manner in how someone declares that tells what they understand that. So if you are more of a thinking person, less of an emotional person, this isn't emotion just because I'm an emotional person. Thinking people should be responding grandly because they get it. They get it in its full depth. They get its Pesha reality, its Ahuan reality, and its Hata reality. Gone. Woo-hoo-hoo. So how do we finish? We're going to finish with both. We're going to finish with both. When I kept silent with the Lord, agony was my story. Are you there in that place right now? When I acknowledge and confess to the Lord, forgiven becomes my story. Therefore, I pray to you. Therefore, I pray to you. Pray what? Acknowledge and confess. Therefore, I pray to you. I hide in you. I learn of you. And I shout of you. So here's the first thing I want for us to do. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do and then we're going to do it. First, I want to have a time to despair. 
of yourself. Why do I say it that way? Because Martin Luther, after calling out to Christ by grace through faith and coming into relationship with the Lord and acknowledging, confessing his sin before the Lord, here's what he wrote. He wrote, Oh dear brother, oh dear sister, learn to know Christ and Christ crucified. Learn to sing to him a new song, to despair of yourself. You hear that? Learn to despair of yourself and say to him, Thou, Lord Jesus, thou art my justice and I am thy sin. Thou hast taken what is mine and hast given me what is thine. And he goes on to say, you will find no peace but in him, despairing of yourself and your works and learning what love he opens his arms to you, taking on him all your faults and giving you all his justice. Friends, that's Psalm 32. David, out of his experience, I acknowledge my sin before the Lord. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we're going to have some time for that. And then, by the way, after that, we're going to finish the service out with a time to shout and song. And it's not going to be calm. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you to bow your heads right now. And I want to take a couple minutes of some time of despair. Some time to despair of yourself. Just as ready to do that, I just ask, when was the last time you got unsilent with the Lord? When was the last time you got unsilent with the Lord? I'm asking, now is that time? And first... If you are redeemed in Christ, if there's a time in your life where you've come to receive Christ as your Lord, really what Psalm 32 is about, this is a time to get unsilent with the Lord about your ongoing sin. And you can do that in your chair. You can turn around and kneel if you want. I'm going to ask if you want to come up front and you want to kneel up here, you're welcome to do that. And I'm just going to say come. If you want to do that, come on up and it's time just to have time with the Lord. And acknowledge and confess. Positionally, your sins are covered. But in the ongoing walk with the Lord, if you've been silent, it's time to get unsilent. So you come in the presence of the Lord and acknowledge and confess. I just want to make one other comment to maybe the person who is not redeemed in Christ. You've never had a time in your life or like I was saying about a marriage, there's a time in life where you, you, you stand and, you, and, and, and you, you enter into the relationship. And maybe you've been acknowledging that there's a God, but you have not come to that point of confessing and receiving. The scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And I'm just calling, I'm just asking you, You've never received Christ as your Savior. It's time. It's time. It's not just time to give some rote prayer. It's time to enter into relationship. So you pray. You come. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. 
said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Think about that. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. And you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows, are the woes, the agony of the wicked. But steadfast love surround the ones who trust in the Lord. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one. So, how does a run respond? <laughs> Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. But it's more than just being glad. The text tells us. Shout for joy. So Harvest, it's time to respond in a theologically right way. In a theologically right way when we understand that when the Lord brings forgiveness that is beyond our comprehension and the unsilence, in, in becoming unsilent with Him, the Lord is not expecting some puny little response from you and me. Because what He has done is not some puny little thing. He is expecting for us to like look at this and go, this is awesome, you guys. This is totally awesome. In fact, it's so awesome that we probably like have to stand and then we probably should sing in a way that is like unlike any moment we sang this morning. Why? Because the Lord is awesome.